I follow a lot of business icons. A lot of them talk about how like some of the theories that people teach at school don't work in the real world. I think it, it depends on what it is they're responding to. Dr. Denise Russo, a renowned international management scholar. Denise Russo, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and a leader in the movement to make management practice more evidence-based. Denise is the H.J. Hines Professor of Organizational Behavior and Public Policy. She's also the director of the Institute for Social Enterprise and Innovation and chairs the Healthcare Policy and Management Program. Is there a process of like being able to you know, take a step back that you found to work for a business owner? Fong, you asked the magic question, is there a practice? And I would give you two practices for which the evidence is very supportive in terms of leading to better outcomes. I follow a lot of business icons, especially with social media. You know, there's so many like business icons nowadays, you know, your Mark Cubans, you know, like there's the, it's, it's easier to see them now. So a lot of them talk about how like some of the theories that people teach at school don't work in the real world, you know? So is there any truth to that, that, that you found? I think it, it depends on what it is they're responding to. Because it's my hunch from dealing with business people is that they have a lot of very specific questions and issues that people don't study. So uh, I'll get calls at Christmas time. What does the literature say a boss should buy for his secretary for Christmas? <laughs> Guess what? There's no research on that topic. Right. On the other hand, I think uh, with regard to if, if people have had actually had formal training, let's say they've had training in change management or they've had tra training and decision-making, that it might be that they're distracted a little bit by the specifics of the situation, who's involved and the emotion mm. that generates, or their fear of making a mistake. And that could become make it harder to recall and use what mm. they were trained in, in terms of uh, what the science would say about motivating people or making change. So I actually think it's an issue of how people practice as mm -hmm. managers and whether or not they're kind of more carefully thinking through what it is they know and mm -hmm. what it is they could know about the decision that would help them practice better. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the process of decision making that falls short in many cases, not really so much what uh what was uh what the science says or what they were taught mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense you know when you're in the thick of business it could get a little heated you know you might not be thinking objectively and so maybe if you take a step back and look at the situation objectively you might be able to use some of the practices that you know your studies find so um, is there a process of like being able to, you know, take a step back that you found to work for business owners or do they like consult with other people who have a more objective, you know, view that because they're not in the situation? Like what have you found to, to work? Fong, you asked the magic question, which <laughs> is, you know, is there a practice? Mm -hmm. And I would give you two practices mm -hmm. for which the evidence is very supportive in terms of leading to better outcomes on average. The first is pause. Uh, before we shoot from the hip, move quickly on a decision, unless we're dealing with a crisis and the building's on fire, 
And even then there might be, one might take 10 seconds to think through what you're going to do. But what we find is that if people stop and reflect, what is it that is going on here? What are my goals? What might be the other person's goals? That, that pause, that reflection to figure out what problem are you trying to solve with this decision that that moment of reflection, be it a minute or, hey, you could be lucky. Maybe you could think about it till tomorrow, that that um, reflection time, it, it causes people to recall more and actually sometimes acquire more information about the issues that they're trying to make a decision on. So there's good evidence that the, how you start making the decision is probably has the most effect on the kind of outcome you get. Second thing besides pausing and thinking about, well, what problem am I trying to solve so that you respond to the decision rather than react to it? Mm. Response is processing time. The second thing is pretty much across the board, when you're making a decision, try to generate or at least one other alternative to the decision you're thinking of making. So very often uh, when people make a decision or solve a problem, they go with the first available solution that comes to mind. Hmm. And a lot of managerial decisions are very solution oriented. Certainly a lot of changes that are launched are, you know, they want to implement this thing, which they think will make the organization better without really thinking about what is that thing good for? And could there be other solutions that could work? But always think about, we advise, because the literature is very clear on this, generating more than one alternative when you make a choice or a decision. So make so it's a true choice and you're mm -hmm. really thinking about the features of the solutions you could use, that that reflection on alternatives increases the likelihood that in the end, the decision will be viewed as a success. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So how many solutions would you recommend? Like two, three, five, ten? <laughs> I'm sure there's like a point of diminishing returns, right? Where you just kind of get an analysis paralysis. <laughs> You're very wise. This is probably a situation where less is more mm -hmm. in the sense that it's easy for all of us to be overwhelmed by information and certainly by possible alternatives. Mm -hmm. We know that marketing in marketing research, if you give too many choices to people in trying to make a decision at the store, they might go away buying nothing of your right. product because it was mm -hmm. overwhelming. That 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 you know fundamental finding. So the idea would be first more than one alternative. So it's <laughs> really an alternative rather than just my preferred solution is better than going with the first first solution. But the idea of taking some of that reflection time to first say what problem or problems am I trying to solve with this decision, and then having identified that generating or gathering a couple of alternative solutions. You know, I think two or three are mm -hmm. probably fine because we're not computers. If it were six, I probably couldn't think about all the features right. because here's where the good, the, the uh, virtuous effect from alternatives comes. So I have, let's just keep it simple, two alternatives, you know, and I could do this, which is readily available, or I could make something happen to make this alternative that actually has more features that uh, address the problem that I'm trying to solve. Well, maybe in the course of comparing one and two, I get an idea from two 
that I can adapt on solution number one. I can, when I try to implement, the first thing I was thinking about, I can add those other features. You know, I can mm -hmm. ask certain people to participate in this and that'll broaden the reach of my solution. I can change the time frame over which I'd implement it because like solution number two, it, you know, it, it uh, uh, will require some supports to make it work. And I maybe wasn't even thinking about when I first went with solution number one, but I've learned about my preferred solution by having an alternative. So it's just hmm. as you were talking to an architect about what you wanted in your new house and you were having a hard time telling them all the things you wanted. So the architect put in front of you three different models, you know, it's a ranch, it's, you know, it's modern, it's flat roof, whatever. And you looked at them all. And because you had those three, you could then tell the architect, I like this feature, but not that this will really work for what we want because you, the alternatives stimulate your thinking. Mm, I see. You know, one thing I'm curious about, and I don't know if this is going to be viable for the future, but especially with um, new technologies, AI technologies like ChatGPT, you know, what if you're dealt a scenario where you, instead of you deciding on your own, you put all the, the context of the situation into an AI, like a ChatGPT, and then you ask ChatGPT what the likelihood different you know, uh, options could be, and then the likelihood of success for each option. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I I, I think that there are some good support uh, uses mm -hmm. that chat GPT can be put to, mm -hmm. but it right now, at least, it's only as good as what is the evidence or the information or the data, mm -hmm. depending on what it is that's pulling up off the internet. It's only as good at what it finds. And your question asked to me, uh, uh, commented on the issue of the likelihood or the probability that mm. something would work. That's pretty specific information that for many interventions and alternatives, it does not exist. Mm. It may exist in a marketer's mind, but it doesn't mm. exist in the science. So if you're trying mm. to make an informed decision, not based on hoopla or... Um, sort of uh, the self-presentation of products, uh, product okay. information, um, I don't think you're going to get that level of precision. Mm -hmm. What I think is good about uh, chat uh, GPT is that it scrapes the internet for features that could be related to the problem or the decision. And mm -hmm. that's a good thing because, you know, we're not perfect computers. We can't mm -hmm. think about all the different things that might happen we might be a little better if we were working in a group because, you know, we have more heads, more access to different information. But the idea that you have a tool that can tell you about this thing you're trying to implement, oh, you, you're going to do a new performance management system in this kind of an organization. And if you asked uh, ChatGBT to tell you what they know, it's going to come up with features you haven't thought about. Mm. And that's a good thing. Probability, right. not so much. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's it's more of like a an aid rather than you know relying on it to make the decision itself. So yeah, and mm -hmm. we don't need all the tools we can get. I mean, one right. of the things that's really different, let's say, between management and engineering or management and uh, medicine, mm -hmm. uh, other fields that are evidence based, is that uh, managers often 
not always, but often do not have support tools, mm. uh, don't have ways of, they don't have a formula to put the information in and have them give it weights and tell you what the likely outcomes are. Where we're in safe finance, such tools mm. exist. But using artificial intelligence, uh, just like we would use, use a smart person in the organization to help us think about something, it is, I think, to the good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, your studies are in organizational change. And, you know, one thing I've learned in life is that, you know, if someone doesn't want to change, then you can't really force them to change, right? And so, you know, I think about an organization, an organization is made of people, right? So, like, how do you create change if not everybody in the organi organization wants to change, especially if you're at scale, right? If you have 10,000 employees, I mean, the likelihood of all 10,000 wanting to change is going to be very slim. So, you know, how do you make change with, you know, with a, a large scale of, you know, organization? Okay. Well, of course, in one sense, you've, you've, a you've asked the question and you've given an answer, which is, <laughs> you know, you want change and, mm -hmm. Sometimes other people in the organization don't want it. Let me correct mm -hmm. that. Every time some people in the organization don't want it. That's mm -hmm. the normative situation is an idea, uh, uh, you could say a problem is recognized where a change could be important. An mm -hmm. opportunity is surfaced that maybe could be realized if we started doing things differently. Or you know, maybe there is really a crisis and we have no choice and we have to do something now or there's new government regulation and we need to respond to it. And that's not a that's not an option. So mm -hmm. those three circumstances, you know, problem, opportunity and crisis uh, are the common circumstances in which change arises. Two things in a large organization that I because that's how you phrased it, mm -hmm. that I would um, highlight is that almost any change that succeeds, that's my caveat, if it succeeds, is likely to be a mix of some top-down initiative and uh, incentive and goals and support, and a fair amount of bottom-up activity to either initiate or shape the direction of the managerially created change. So your job as somebody trying to lead change is to promote both of those. Make the top-down processes that maybe recognize the problem and are trying to organize uh, a, a solution approach. And a bottom up, people are concerned about the problem and they have local insight and get those to work together. So in, the first thing about a large organization is it has a landscape. It's got peaks, it's got valleys, it has deserts, mm -hmm. you know, it has rivers and streams. It's varied. And it's often the case that when people are senior in the organization, uh, a lot of that information about local differences is, is filtered out to them. It's hard for them to get a good insight into mm -hmm. where the pockets of, of objection and the pockets of support are likely to be. Mm -hmm. but, my, and, but an evidence-based um, uh, principle in this process for a large organization is don't um, label the people who raise issues or lack enthusiasm or, or um, indicate lack of support to the change. Do not label them resistors. Save change resistance 
to a later phase in the process when you have something that started to come online and then there are holdouts and people will say, I'm never going to support this. Never, ever, ever. Mm. That's resistance. And then that's a, there's a tactic there. But in most change processes, there, there's two things that go on. Conversion and self-persuasion. Mm. So conversion means because of things you expose me to. Uh, and, you know, the all hands meetings where senior leaders talk about the need for change and some of the possible approaches you know, I start, you know, okay, thinking, you know, maybe there's something right, or I do trust the president of my university. If he sees this, I'm going to give him some credibility, even if it's a little painful to me, because mm -hmm. I have trust. And so a lot of conversion happens because of trust in the leadership. Mm -hmm. And in a large organization, trust in leadership, of course, it always has to be earned. It's not freely mm -hmm. granted. But if you're trying to make a change in an organization, that has basically goodwill mm -hmm. between senior and lower level people, that's really the optimum situation. That doesn't mean people will like everything, but they'll give you a listen and maybe more willing to try things and if trust were lacking. Mm -hmm. The other aspect of change is self-persuasion. Mm -hmm. Self-persuasion is when, you know, president of the university, you know, kind of an you know, he, he said, you know, he really wanted us to try out new diversity and inclusion approaches in our different departments. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a senior professor in mine. I, you know, found uh, friends who were I'm on, on the faculty who wanted to try things too. And we locally kind of experimented with different ways of reviewing candidates. And when that turned out to be insightful, I persuaded myself that this change was a good thing. He convert me because he wasn't there. He just gave me room to try mm -hmm. something that I thought could be good. So self-persuasion comes when local folks have been encouraged to try things that fit into the broader change initiative. And like in any good democratic situation, I've learned from my own experience. I was free to learn. Mm. On the other hand, and organizations aren't perfect democracies, um, because there are a lot of resources controlled at the top, Senior leaders also have the opportunity to convert people by information given and by the opportunities to create created to serve on different task forces and groups that are trying to figure out how the change should be carried out. Mm -hmm. it, no, no change comes from the top alone if it's effective. It needs to be co-designed in a process. And mm -hmm. maybe in that you're actually getting a mix of conversion and self-persuasion, both of which are really good levers. And if both of those fail, and at the end, there's still some people who say, give it up. I'm not mm -hmm. going to, that's resistance. And then there's a, there might be reason to move them out or isolate them, you know, early retirement, whatever it is, but they've had an opportunity to help shape the change and participate in it. So we don't come at them with a heavy hand, you mm -hmm. know, we actually present them with what the new organization is. And one mm -hmm. of the things we find out is that many people who say at first they hate this, they won't do it, but they still liked it, their job and they like to be in the company, will just say when this change now is the norm, okay, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I'll take that. Hmm. That's very interesting. So when change happens, is there like a bell curve where like in the beginning, you know, there's, it's like a lot of uh, people who are early adopters would be like, yeah, I'm all for change, right? And then you go into the middle where 
more, you kind of start to convert more and more people. And then in the end, there's like the laggards, you know, who just will not, will just resist. Is, is it kind of similar to that? Well, you know, Fong, what you've just described is the diffusion of innovation model, which is <laughs> around, I think probably since the 1950s about mm -hmm. how new ideas get taken up. Mm -hmm. the innovators who like shiny new things, and then the early adopters who are a little bit more scrupulous about, well, it, it really ought to be, be reliable too, or work, mm -hmm. and they try it. And then the the late, uh, the early majority, the, mm -hmm. the majority, the late majority, and then those last people we were talking about right. the are the <laughs> laggards. Mm -hmm. and, and there is some aspect of that that's true, that model that we're describing is a flow of new ideas in society, and, and mm -hmm. it's been a useful way of thinking about how innovations are taken up in education or medicine or whatever. I think in the case of the kind of large-scale organizational change you were talking about, because people in an organization are embedded in, you know, kind of these hierarchies of influence, um, you don't necessarily see this more natural flow as in a society where people in different kinds of roles get exposed to a new technology. Mm -hmm. the, the early adopters tend to be people for whom the change is obviously useful. It helps them solve a problem they know they have and they want it to be remedied. So hands up, bring it here, I'll get involved. Mm -hmm. the later adopters don't necessarily have to be as is often the case with new ideas, more conservative people, the change just might not seem relevant to them until mm -hmm. some influence process and practices take hold and they start seeing the benefit of it. Most change is taken up because people see the value in doing it. Mm -hmm. And in, in a large-scale organization, since it doesn't change on a dime, um, it takes a while for people to get exposed mm -hmm. to it new practices you know rollouts often start in maybe the neediest place you know mm -hmm. so maybe that's in the manufacturing facility or the office factory facility because they have such high volumes and so geez if we get this remedied in terms of service quality that'll really help us and once we see how beneficial it is we want to diffuse it to marketing and we want it in R&D and we want it in all these other places um, that that path follows more both need as perceived by change leaders, as well as uh, how much the kind of resources available to them. And since mm. change is resource intensive, you might not launch everything at once. In fact, I would advise not to until mm. you understood better how it worked. Right. Interesting. So you mentioned, um, you know, when you're dealing with change uh, from the top down and then bottom up. So I'm just thinking about that it might seem like the bottom up might be a little bit more difficult for leaders, right? Because they're more detached from the front lines, right? So what does that look like? What, how could they really cultivate a bottom up approach? Well, so one of the things we, I would start with is to say that regardless of the level of change experience and the level of trust that exists in the organization with the top management team, the start of a major transformation when, when it really is a whole house big deal, really should begin with training of the leadership team. Uh, the leadership mm -hmm. team needs time 
to because there's always new people you haven't worked with before in a, mm -hmm. a, a dramatic fashion um to be be able to go through the basics of what is demanded of them as people who are trying to create uh, a motivation for kind of a new state or new condition and um help them figure out well you know what's the evidence for that what's the basis of this and then how would you articulate that to others how would you expose them to that the idea of you can't just take a change model and plunk it down the people have to process it and that has a learning mm -hmm. component so most effective changes begin with when it's a whole house change with a training of top management for this particular change not just its technical aspects but its social communication its organizational facts that are relevant to it so you can begin thinking about what are reasonable features to bring in, how to articulate some sort of future end state we're trying to achieve, which of course is called a vision. Um, mm -hmm. And we're trying to avoid this vision being a hallucination, which is to say mm -hmm. something top management thinks, but nobody else catches mm -hmm. or, or finds credible. You know, you have to think through how you, not only what the future state is, but how you're going to talk about that to other people and why it should be motivating. I recommend this occur in sort of a training and design process early on. Mm. That, that will take, um, that is reflection on the part of senior leaders, but part of the training should be how to encourage, support, and if you get lucky, catch and develop bottom-up uh, implementation of the change because people want to participate because they don't want it imposed on themselves. They would like mm -hmm. to be able to craft something that's in line with their goals. And if relationship is, if trust is there, you know, they do want to respond to the leader's initiative, but they need that, that discretion to shape it locally. Mm -hmm. How are you going to work with those folks? Now, some organizations do a nice job of this by saying, let's see if we can invite people across the organization, maybe at the, the level of the departments, to uh, initiate one or two projects that mm -hmm. are part of this change we're thinking about. You know, maybe it's a change in metrics, maybe it's a change in um, service quality, maybe it's a change in inter-unit cooperation. Um, might be better, since people know where their own stumbling blocks are, that they would initiate um, the projects that would foster better intergroup coordination. And then, you know, have top management support those local projects. And then the key part of this, Fong, is and then learn from what happens mm. about what works for us and where the stumbling blocks are and where people had to refer up problems to the senior leadership because they didn't have the resources or the authority mm. to solve it themselves and where they did have the opportunity to make mm. local changes um, on their own. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like, you know, when you're dealing with change, there might not be a perfect solution or like after implementing it, you might run into problems. So you have to tweak that solution a little bit to uh, be more practical for people, you know, at the bottom of the organization. I think that's mm -hmm. pretty much always the case. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, this would be true in a restructuring as well it would as it would be true in a a technological adaptation, mm -hmm. or it would be true if we're trying to foster a, a, a more whole house cooperation rather than a more siloed arrangement. 
you can have a sketch mm-hmm. the top management team of what you'd like to see happen and maybe where you think you could support people to engage in this. But um, that sketch is incomplete. Mm-hmm. And it's completed by people trying to, you know, take up that design and make it work locally. Mm-hmm. And so coming at this process with a desire to learn and to share what's being learned is really important. This is one reason why I'd say maybe don't start whole house because you're still learning how to learn Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of this. So maybe trials, they're not quite pilot tests, but they're Mm -hmm. smaller scale take-ups of what it is you're trying to change. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What made it it hard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm I'm thinking about, you know, so like... uh, we're talking about change here for a large organization. How would the approach be different with like, let's say a smaller business, you know, someone with less than say 10 employees? Okay. That's, that's a beautiful question there because you can actually get all the stakeholders at one table. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the biggest issues in change management is um, just the, the, the load capacity of a conversation in an organization with, um, let's say, 100 people, it's one thing to have 100 people divided into two groups of 50. It's another thing to have 100 people divided into 10 groups of 10. The right. latter is much harder to get engagement in and, and participation because every boundary is a baffle as well as a filter for information. And mm-hmm. also perspectives are different. My argument for, for a small organization First, you can manage by walking around a lot better in a small Mm -hmm. organization and get a sense. But the idea then is to figure out where where there are enough particulars in a situation where you need local participation in Mm -hmm. how it should be designed something or how something should be introduced. And should that be with everybody at the table? Because that's usually pretty difficult. Or who should be representatives? And representation is a very important aspect of this. You can communicate with people. All hands meetings are a small number. Mm-hmm. You can talk with them and wander around. The idea of getting perspective on what it is that you'd like to see differently. Uh, mm-hmm. done differently. The idea of uh, helping people understand where's the gap between where things are and where they need to be mm-hmm. and making that palpable. I mean, the the senior leader in an organization is one of the most important resources in a change spending Mm -hmm. his or her time connecting with people or connecting with representatives is very important so you know the small business owner can walk around and talk to people explain what he or she's concerned with and and have people get a reaction to it Mm -hmm. then the idea of you're, you're trying to foster trust is what you share with them about how you'd like to see this train change process unfold. And the notion would be what time frame, what goals, what specific goals do you want to see happen here? And then taking people's input on um, what would be a good process for doing this. How could we make this happen? What do you think would be a good way of doing this? And the idea of you know, likely to get better goal acceptance in a smaller organization because of the credibility of the leader and mm. also because of that firsthand contact. So you can take, you know, uh, get information on what it would make for people uh, to believe the goal is more doable 
mm-hmm. and acceptable and to factor that into the implementation. If people accept a goal, you don't necessarily have to do a lot more complicated things than say, can we, let's work on this between now and then <laughs> and, and let your, lay your goal out and give them them room to implement it. I, I think it's, change is actually an advantage in a smaller organization mm-hmm. because people's jobs are broader mm-hmm. and their relationship to the organization is more direct as right. opposed to filtered through many people and so the idea would be to lever that yeah absolutely so that makes a lot of sense you know like that relationship is there and i think that relationship can foster trust easier um you can build that rapport you know um so I know that one of the studies you did, I mean, I think I saw was pub, uh, you published it and it was cited by over 15,000 other people, uh, which is incredible. And it's about trust. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, that study for people who aren't aware of it? Well, it's actually, um, <clears throat> it's a theory paper on mm. the nature of trust, but it builds on this mm. body of research. I've contributed to it, but so have many, many other amazing colleagues. The key idea in that paper that you're referring to mm-hmm. is um, that trust means the willingness to be vulnerable to mm. the intention and actions of another. So the key mm. idea was when trust exists, trust exists because you could harm me in some way, mm. but I believe you won't. And so I'm willing to kind of open up to you. I'm willing to you know, stay on this job, even though I don't know what's going to happen to the company or if you'll stay around because I trust you. Mm. So vulnerabilities are the basis of trust. It, you know, if if everybody were a tub on his or her own bottom and had everything they needed, trust would be irrelevant. We we just would live on our own resources. But that isn't the world. And we benefit if we can trust others or have others in our lives we can trust. Mm. Trust is a huge currency in organizational change because if people trust their leadership or the organization broadly they are more willing to accept uncertainty chances Mm. um risks of various kind on the idea that the other will treat me with good faith and Mm -hmm. find in research that the probably the best predictor we could look at many possible predictors of change success you know, how much money was spent and how long it took and the complexity of a change. But the best predictor of all is trust in senior leaders. Mm-hmm. So because trust in senior leaders mean when you tell me something, I'm going to believe it pretty much. Mm-hmm. If I don't trust you, you could tell me over and over and I'm still, you know, t- squinting at you and not being too mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. So if a trust, if trust is high, even a large kind of complicated change is more easily accepted than mm-hmm. if trust is very low, even a small change can feel like a mountain. Because mm-hmm. when or, let's say an organization has a very uh, contentious history of layoffs and restructurings and maybe uh, changes that have been launched before that didn't work so well and, and heads rolled and all that. So when trust is low, Anything we ask of people may seem kind of risky mm-hmm. and make them more vulnerable because for, especially in the context of change that is framed as economic, we're doing this out of business necessity. 
we're doing this for economic reasons. When people hear economic reasons, they hear, ah, we're doing it so you make more money and or mm. you're doing it to get uh, more from us for less. Mm. It signals, I call it the loss frame, that, that something's going to be taken away from us mm. so that the business gets more. P people don't, if, if trust is low and they hear economic reasons, you know, the kind of all, um, the gloves are off mm. because people do feel threatened. Right. On the other hand, if trust is good, even if there's been like a, you know, quite a history in the past, but this management team has built with it a rapport and has shown its credibility and word and deed. And when it asks, you know, we, we need to make some changes because the market's changing or we need, to, or that might often say we need to improve our quality and it will help us in the market. Adding something which is not just economic, but that is also valuable, like service quality or product quality or patient care quality, people resonate with that. And if trust is high, being offered the opportunity to make a change that realizes a value mm -hmm. that people have beyond just economics is relatively easy for people to take up. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a reason why I say, you know, the pre-work of change is to protect and enhance the quality of the relationship between senior leaders and employees broadly. If you're mm -hmm. doing that in the way you pay, in the way you recruit, in the way you listen, in the way you um, support people in their lives, you're well positioned to adapt to changes that you need to, you, know, you need to make happen. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You you brought up so many great points there. Let's let's uh, kind of dive uh, further into some of them. So the first thing you mentioned was giving trust, you know, and being vulnerable. And so sometimes I hear like, you know, there's almost like two camps, right? It's, you know, there's a camp that says, hey, we should give trust first to the other person, right? Be vulnerable first. And there's another camp that says, no, trust has to be earned. You know, I can't trust you unless you show me that you can be trusted. So, you know, from what I'm understanding, it's the first approach might be a little bit more empathetic, right? Might be more effective, which is you give trust to the other person and in return, they'll trust you more. Is that right? Yes. Well, I think you're right. I mean, trust is, it's based on reciprocity mm -hmm. that, um, if I do good for you, you will do good for me. Positive mm -hmm. reciprocity. Mm -hmm. But there is such thing as negative reciprocity. You've screw, screwed me over, so I owe you nothing, you know, which mm -hmm. often comes in terms of perhaps some retaliatory conduct on the job. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think the issue of who trusts first is the classic question <laughs> in psychology and sociology. And I, mm -hmm. I guess in life, who trusts first? <laughs> I, I'm suggesting that since we know change is inevitable in organizations and, and it mm -hmm. perhaps constantly more likely intermittently, we will have it, that to be a trustworthy player is a responsibility of senior leaders. Mm -hmm. And so I would say first, you need to be worthy of trust and show trust to your workers. Mm -hmm. Then it will be reciprocated. Right. You know, the, the old ad, ad, adage that, um, you know, we kind of 
know, we used to say uh, companies get the unions they deserve. If they've been really uh, abusive to workers, you'll have a, a very um, belligerent mm -hmm. and uh, demanding union. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, there's been a history of collaboration and cooperation, as it is commonly the case in, in, a, in um, some industries, they can work things through. There, there's mm -hmm. enough will that in uncertain times, appropriate adjustments will be made. So you're going to get, you could say you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to get the trust you deserve. Mm -hmm. So how to be worthy of it is one of the things that interests me uh, as an organizational psychologist. How does a management team show itself to be trustworthy? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the really important issues here is, and there's some basic issues in fairness. So, you know, is pay fair? You don't have to pay people extraordinarily high to pay them fairly. You know, you pay mm -hmm. people enough to take wages off the table so that they're worried about other things because I don't have to worry about my pay. Mm -hmm. I paid enough, my bills are covered. Did people have a, of an attractive future in the organization? If I have some sort of a future here and my present is good because I'm paid enough and I have an attractive future here, my skills will be better. My, the people I enjoy working with are likely to stay. Uh, that's compelling mm -hmm. to people about the value of being in a place. So I, I would say, think about how to make the jobs people have more valuable and how to make their involvement in the organization more worthy of trust. Mm -hmm. And those are organizations who are highly responsive mm -hmm. to a need for change articulated by senior leaders. Right. Small businesses are often really good examples of this because they're many times led by the founder or mm -hmm. by somebody from the family who's well established in the kind of the social network of the organization. Um, and indeed, they're often managed very relationally. Mm -hmm. So there are ways of making change happen well in such a setting. You may have to raise people's skill levels because that's one of the areas where small businesses sometimes are a little short on. But mm -hmm. the skill uh, that's there amplified by training could make a small business very responsive to the need for change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And what, another thing you mentioned is you know, building trust through doing things that might help them in their lives, right? And so it might look like if someone has a sick mother, you know, buying flowers for that sick mother, you know, like an employee with a sick mother, you buy flowers for that sick mother, maybe giving them a card, right? And you build that trust over time. And so, you know, when you mentioned that, it made me think of a book um, called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, by Stephen Covey. And he talks about the emotional bank account. You know, and so you kind of put deposits into the bank account by doing good deeds and good, you know, um, goodwill for people. And then later on, when you ask them to do something, or in this case, make a change, they're more likely to do so because you added to that bank account. And so it seems like that's, it sounds like that would be an approach to take, you know, to build trust, right? Well, I think that's very, I think that is important. And you're describing uh, a more relational approach to employment mm. than say companies owned by private equity concerns mm -hmm. have, trying to, you know, get their rents out of the business. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that you cannot 
overestimate the value people place on being in a trustworthy organization with supportive relationships. Mm. One feature, and actually it's kind of a sad feature, is it's hard to get that somewhere else. Mm. But that can reap real benefits in terms of both the, you know, the, the attractive present and future it offers people, as well as the commitment that leads to being willing to adapt when the time comes. Right, exactly. I think it really comes down to the goals, you know, of the company, you know, if a company like private equity is optimized for like quick transaction and quick, you know, money, then, you know, maybe it might not be best to have a trustworthy, like to spend that time. I mean, I would argue that it's, it would still be good because, you know, we got to be ethical and you got to be human. But like for myself, my vision is to create companies that will last forever, you know, to live beyond me. Um, and so, you know, the approach of building relationships with people and, you know, kind of uh, building trust with them to where they want, they don't want to work anywhere else. You know, they want to retire in the company. That's, that's something that I'm optimized for. And that's the approach I'm taking. And so I, I think it really depends on the sort of uh, company, um, you know, to your point. So, uh, so let's talk about the other study you did. Uh, another <laughs> Um, or I mean, um, I think it was a paper, I keep saying uh, study, but the one about psychological contracts, I thought that was really unique, cited by over 9,000 people. So can you talk a little bit about psychological contracts within organizations? Oh, I love this topic. Um, I started research on what's called the psychological contract about 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. It refers to, let's call it the deal in the head. It's an individual's belief about what he or she owes the employer and what they owe that person in return is the psychological contract. And I started working in this area because my own father hated his job. Um, and he very much felt that he had a broken psychological contract with the company that he worked for. Um, and I had begun to wonder, what would it look like if people felt their organization had honored their commitments and how would the people react in return? I was never interested in the violation part because there was so much, but I'd love to see, I wanted to study what healthy employment relations look like to show what were, would be possible. And so uh, we find a couple of things. Um, first, in, um, for, the, for the employer's perspective, if you're trying to build psychological contracts that are fulfilled and kept, uh, and you typically want that because people who feel the organization treats them well and has a good exchange with them are much more likely to step up when help is needed and provide it. They're much more likely to stay, and they're much more likely to speak up to try to help the organization when they see problems as opposed to vote with their feet or badmouth privately to a coworker because they have that level of sense of a relational commitment. So fulfilling a psychological contract is partly, it's not about um, necessarily always paying the highest wage, but it is about keeping the commitments you have made. If you say you're mm -hmm. going to do this, you build a system in place so you do. If you promise people upward mobility, what forms might that take? Mm. Um, if you're promising them stability in their job, what does that mean? Does, you know, is that about wages? Is that about job security? Is that about future employment elsewhere? If they're, you know, that their skills go up over time, uh, the idea 
of insight, making psychological contracts that, that can be kept is let's pay attention to the goals that your workforce has when they join and the goals they have now as they've continued to stay. Because we find that um, how people react to the HR policies of a company, how people react to the interchange they have with their line manager is very much shaped by the kind of goals or the kind of future they're seeking to have. Mm. The goals I have shape what I hear my employer say in an interaction with me. So next week, I'm going to go talk to my dean for my annual conversation after our, our annual review. You know, I've been doing this a long time, so I'm pretty sure I know mm. what he's going to talk about. He's a lovely guy, and I don't think he's going to surprise me, but, you know, mm. we have another <laughs> that but the the critical idea is i share with him my goals here's what i'm hoping to make happen mm. and in doing so he makes commitments to me and i make commitments to him mm. i advise employers who are seeking to be sure they can fulfill the commitments that they've already made and any new ones that they they make because of the benefits that comes to them and the person to ask people about what their goals are present and very importantly the future because those are going to be the lenses through which individuals interpret the commitments and the policies and practices that the company uh, engages in. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when um, you know, I was uh, a sales leader and I talked, you know, whenever I recruited someone, I would have an onboarding meeting with them and I would talk about you know, what I expect from them and then what they expect from me as their leader. And so is it similar to that where you kind of go over expectations, what their goals are and how I could help cultivate that? That's spot on mm -hmm. because the critical issue is understanding first a priori coming in, what are the person's expectations? Mm -hmm. First, are they accurate? Because people can come mm -hmm. in with expectations that mm -hmm. are based on not very well thought out uh, in, uh, you know, messages and signals. So it's really in your interest as an employer to understand what of the person's expectations are realizable here and what might be the alternative. You know, mm -hmm. so, somebody who says they want, you know, this kind of these kinds of hours or they want this kind of upward mobility, you may have to tell them, well, here's kind of what we're going to need from you. We got flexibility here. In terms of mobility, there's mobility here, but mm -hmm. our pathway typically looks like this. Mm -hmm. Realistic sharing, here's what I want, and realistic sharing, here's what I can offer, or here's the conditions under which you could get that is incredibly important. Because a wise person, probably an old French philosopher, said something like, Half the promises never kept were never made. Mm. And that's a, a critical idea that why realistic expectations are so important is it, um, it filters out to some extent unrealistic expectations that might be formed you know, from, from various sources. So mm. that's a, a first critical conversation. A second thing that is important in this process is we have come to realize in looking at psychological contract understandings employees have, that there's a lot of variability, even for people doing ostensibly the same job. Maybe mm -hmm. they're even sitting at the same long table, you know, um, with uh, uh, sidewalls up answering phones, but they could still have some different beliefs. And 
it turns out that those different beliefs are not necessarily errors or misinterpretations. It's because over time, individuals negotiate different kinds of job features with their managers. You know, so you know, the idea that uh, one person might, uh, who, who you know, was motivated to stay after temp thinking about leaving, got a pay adjustment. She also might have gotten uh, a, ch a change in the kind of duty she has because she really mm -hmm. didn't like this work, but preferred this other kind of selling or work. So, okay, you can do that. You don't have to do this. So there's a little bit of an economic deal and there's a little bit of a task deal. Somebody else might have bargained for the opportunity to become a supervisor in the next couple months if they do this, that, and the other. Those individuals ostensibly doing the same job have different beliefs about their employment relationship because of these small negotiations. Mm -hmm. Line managers make small negotiations all the time. Mm -hmm. It's what greases the skids and you're smiling. And since you've been a manager, I suspect you've made those too. Mm -hmm. Knowing how and when to make a special arrangement, we call them idiosyncratic deals or ideals. Mm. Everybody has the same job, but they might have subtly different features. Maybe a small amount of their job is different. Mm -hmm. Those deals are very important to making a job more valuable to that person. Because mm. not everything that HR might offer is wanted by everybody. Right. It's sometimes customizing that little bit of a special arrangement or that little bit of a developmental opportunity with the eye to something in the future adds tremendous value to the job for the person. It's a fulfilling psychological contract. It's also a resource that makes this job more valuable than going somewhere else might be because it's hard to get special arrangements except for maybe pay differences when uh, you're newly hired in a company because you don't know the job. You don't know what to ask for. And the company doesn't know you and doesn't know what to trust you with. So right. many deals are made once people are hired. And we, mm. we see this very much in the psychological contract data. Right. Little variabilities that seem to matter a lot to job value and motivation. Mm. So let's say someone comes in and they have, you know, they share their goals and what they want at the job. And let's say six months later, something in their life happens where their goals change or adjust. So how often should a leader, a manager check in with their team to make sure that their goals are still what they want or making any pivots along the road? That's a good question. And so one of the things, it's it's one thing to do sort of your annual meeting, like mm. mine with the team next week will be the annual meeting. Now, I've talked to the guy a lot in the year, but right. I have me. Right? <laughs> um, but the idea would be, I recommend this, that when there's been a special arrangement, you know, so um, the idea that the first person I told you about, you know, she bargained for a little more money because that's she was based, willing to stay then and a shift in her job duties. Uh, the money, that's a done deal. But the shift in the job duties, that can have downstream implications that we don't necessarily, we cannot foresee when the deal is granted. Mm -hmm. And it's worthwhile to do a check-in you know, periodically. Sometimes I say after you've made the deal, six weeks later, check in, mm -hmm. six months later after that to see how well it's working. Because when you introduce a variability, it can have implica implications. Does that still work for you? Mm -hmm. Is that making problems for us? How have your coworkers responded to this? Like, do they know? Do they see it? Mm -hmm. If there's any mitigating circumstances that we need to deal with. 
because it's uh, not it's the not just the deal that's made, but it's it's aftermath mm-hmm. that uh, we want to manage. And, and uh, so it's real often just a, a quick check in will do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, one of the things I would also say is, is depending on how broad uh, and exceptional the person's deal is, uh, except where money's involved, because that's usually a contract, <clears throat> kind of a legal document. Um, but for these arrangements that are more about work process and time and location, my advice would be to, to uh, tell the person at the time, let's experiment and give you, you know, this arrangement, and then we'll evaluate after six weeks or two months, how it's working mm-hmm. well, we'll keep it up. You can tell us what your experience is. If there's a problem, we may have to deal with that. If it really creates a problem, we may have to sunset it. Mm. But the willingness to try, I I hate to tell people to grant idiosyncratic deals in perpetuity Mm -hmm. that might become so deviant or Mm -hmm. so hard to manage with or around that they create more problems than they solved. So my view of realistic expectations is to tell people, well, let's try this and let's see if we can make it work and see what's going to take. And realistically, if it should become too burdensome, we may have to change it or stop it. I like sunsetting myself. Yeah, I like that. I like that word, sunsetting it. So, um, you know, to kind of wrap up, I mean... I, you know, before we did the podcast, you know, like the past few days we've been researching and, you know, you did a lot of studies. I mean, you did a lot of papers, research papers. Um, and so if you had to summarize and you go through all the research papers, what, I guess, finding or findings would you say if more business people knew about, it would have a tremendous positive impact, you know, in the business world and society? I think hmm, I think there's a there's there's two things. There's the upside and the downside. the 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 downside part is to realize that um, people are very loss sensitive, and mm. I say you know, it's losing things that are part of the status quo that we're comfortable and we take for granted. You know, the kind of work we do, the mm. job the job title, or our status our pay, our benefits. So if I'm going to make a change that threatens the status quo, I really have to, you know, I think one should be very careful about seeing whether is that you're doing that for an economic benefit? Is that a short-term benefit? You know, uh, and how Mm. will you offset against the cost of a person starts feeling their jobs precarious because you Mm. mess with their benefits? Because if you do that, if you take away taken for granted things, it seems like new taken for granted things could be eroded next. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would weigh that because the status quo, it, when that's in place, relieves people of anxiety mm-hmm. over whether or not basic needs will be met. And you'd like your workforce to be calm and not anxious. Mm-hmm. So thinking about messing with the status quo. Mm. Uh, my inclination would be to think about if I needed to make a change or I was trying to manage costs or whatever, I would think about that first in terms of what I can do to ask people to help us do this Mm. without messing with the core taken for granted features of my job. If we need cost cutting, 
what do you suggest? Because mm-hmm. I can almost promise you management doesn't know all the ways in which money is being wasted or used inappropriately, mm-hmm. used effectively. But the workers do have insights. Mm-hmm. And I would tap that. So that's, that's one point. Don't mess with the status quo uh, unless you're in a crisis. And if you mm-hmm. got a crisis, you say to yourself, and why are you in a crisis? It's a crisis mm-hmm. now. Could you foresee this? The other part of it is... Um, One of the things that's very important that people value, and we see it in all our data, is a compelling future. Mm. Even pre-retirement people want a compelling future. The timeframe may be shorter. What they think is attractive may be different, but the shadow of the future is a big deal for people, Mm. not not just the immediate presence. And how would we make a future more attractive to the people we work with or those that we could recruit. And so let me go back to the first point of in psychological contracts. What goals do our workforce members have? And do we know that? Do we talk about that? I, I think that's really important. We know that in psychological contract research on pre-retired people, many of their goals are associated with um, maintaining their social ties to people they work with. The biggest loss is not always the job, but it is the friends and the social relationships. Or maybe it is indeed the work for persons. Knowing that, getting to the goals people have makes it easier for you to figure out what's a good offer here or what's a good way of building uh, an appropriate relationship for as long as we're going to have this person as an employee. Similarly, we know younger people are a lot more heterogeneous then all this Gen Y, Gen Z, millennial Mm -hmm. language makes you think. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of scientific support for the idea that the generations are all that different, Mm. heterogeneous as individuals. You know, so the idea of asking people, what makes a job valuable to you? People can tell you about this. As long as they're not starving and waiting, wondering where their next meal is going to come from, people think about the future. If people are financially precarious, they think about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If you're secure, you could think about 2025 or 2030. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our futures are dependent on how secure we are today. But to get to get that information about the attractive future for people and then work to help build that into the employment relationship. That is so awesome. I love that. Thank you so much, Denise, for being on. I really enjoyed this. Time flies. Um, where can people find you? Oh, well, I'm at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and <laughs> I'm Denise at cmu.edu. Please uh, email me if you have any want any follow-up. Be my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I will see you in the next episode. <laughs>